Welcome to another episode of the Compass Equip podcast. We are your hosts, Hayden and Pastor Evan. What happened to your pastor name? Well, I, I am a pastor, but when I'm talking to you, I'm calling you pastor. Okay. So, anyway, at Compass, we exist to make disciples of Jesus Christ by reaching people for Christ, teaching people to be like Christ, and training people to serve Christ. Everything we do here, including this Equip podcast, is to fulfill the mission of reaching, teaching, and training. Pastor Evan, we have started a brand new series in the book of Matthew, chapter 5, Woo-hoo! entitled Kingdom Happiness. I'm very happy. And this sermon was subtitled Poor in Spirit. I'm still happy. From Matthew 5, 3. That's right. Would you read that for us? It's quite, quite long, but I see if I can do it. Matthew 5, 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There it is. There you go. That's it's straightforward. So, Pastor Hayden, with such a short text, what what is the point of it? The point of this text is genuinely happy are those in God's economy, are those who are poor in spirit, because it's the poor in spirit who inhi- inherit the kingdom of heaven. And so I summed it up this way. Kingdom happiness belongs to those who own up to their spiritual poverty and give themselves over to the riches of Christ. Very straightforward. Well, Pastor Hayden, before we jump into some of the points, maybe some questions I've written down to help us better understand um, this message so that we can apply it and also go to our life groups prepared, what does it mean to be blessed? I mean, I know we say happy, um, but I guess, how would you explain Remember, that word comes from the Greek word makarios, and it means... Bless you. Bless you. It doesn't mean blessed. It means happy. It means fortunate. And so in a real way, this word means happy. Those who have kingdom happiness. A happiness not based on circumstances, but based on their position in God's kingdom. All right. And so speaking of which, point number one is to expect kingdom happiness. Yes. So I should expect it if I'm poor in spirit. So kind of help us remind us, what is worldly happiness and what is kingdom happiness? A worldly happiness is is a happiness uh, based on circumstances. Circumstantial happiness is how I've, I've coined it and termed it. Uh, not only is it is it a happiness that's often uh, derived from ill-gotten gain, that is, uh, you are living in sin, and it creates a kind of uh, immediate happiness that gives way to bankrupt uh, life and feeling, even emotionally. Uh, you have this uh, mountaintop peak, and you're living in sin, and you just crash because you realize that that is not the way to happiness whatsoever. Something I didn't even talk about in the sermon, but there's a good way to think about worldly happiness. But even from a general uh, point of view, worldly happiness, even in the Christian's life, is is basically just a happiness that we derive from circumstances. And kingdom happiness is a happiness that I derive from my position in God's kingdom. And so worldly happiness is circumstantial happiness. Kingdom happiness is positional happiness based on my place in God's kingdom. All right. Well, point number two, Compass, was to admit your spiritual bankruptcy. Well, Pastor Hayden, that seems a bit of an oxymoron. How can I really be happy when I see my spiritual bankruptcy? How can I be happy when I see my bankruptcy more and more? I think we can look at our spiritual bankruptcy and recognize that, man, so glad that it's not my goodness and my greatness that allows me into the kingdom of heaven. And it is a reminder, almost like a memorial stone, uh, that your inadequacies 
are the reason, and, and owning up to those, are one of the reasons you're able to inherit the kingdom of God. And so as a memorial to say, man, I'm really bankrupt without Christ. And uh, I think that's a really, really great way to look at your bankruptcy, your spiritual bankruptcy, and that should lead you to a kind of joy in Christ and in the kingdom realities that you have inherited through him uh, to give you great happiness. Because when you see not only your bankruptcy, but the bankruptcy of the world, you recognize that all the things that you were pursuing leads to, uh, yeah, I, what a better word than bankruptcy. It just leads you to be bankrupt. It leads you to be without and lacking. Uh, and when you look at the world around you that's just lacking in so many ways, and you recognize it should give you great happiness that your investment in your life is sealed uh, in the kingdom of God through Christ. So then, you know, you mentioned in your sermon about how the church is the expression of the kingdom of God. So how should we view the church differently um, as a present kingdom, you know, reality? Reality. Yeah, I think it's important not only to recognize a church as a kingdom reality, but treat her as such. Oftentimes, we treat the church as a, a punching bag or a, a an entity to be, maybe be disdained or to be desirous to change her. And yet, we don't recognize that although no church in its earthly form is going to be perfect, it is the bride of Christ, and it is a present reality of the kingdom to come. And as I said, even in the sermon, to recognize the church as the first fruits of the kingdom to come, that Jesus gave the church as a first fruit, as the this beginning stages of the coming kingdom. So as Jesus came, he said, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, it's here. Therefore, repent and believe in the good news that I have brought. And then he mobilizes the disciples and endows them with the ability to institute the church, is why Ephesians tells us that the church has been built on Christ the cornerstone and the foundation of the prophets and the apostles. And everything that we do is building on top of that foundation, which is the kingdom realities. And so for you and I, the kingdom of heaven is seen in the microcosm as an outpost here in the local church, and we should treat her as such. We should love her and endear ourselves to her and then make sure that our we are included in her in every single way that we can, not looking at the church as merely an obligation, but as a privilege of our kingdom inheritance. And that makes it how in order to do that, we need to make sure we do point number three, set your minds on the kingdom of heaven. Mm. All right. Well, Pastor Hayden, how, how can we do that? Where can we go? What habits can we put in place to remember the kingdom? Yeah. One of the wonderful, wonderful gifts that God has given us is brothers and sisters in Christ, the local church, the word of God, because where are you going to learn more about the coming kingdom? You're probably not going to learn more about the coming kingdom at work this week. You're probably not going to learn more about the coming kingdom on the radio or on TV necessarily. But where you can be pretty sure that you're going to learn more about the coming kingdom is sitting under the teaching of your local church, sitting in the fellowship of your believers through life groups, uh, and opening up the Word of God. So if you want to set your mind on the kingdom of heaven, you should be making sure that your life is regularly inundated with community, God's Word, and the preaching of God's Word in the local church. Wonderful. Well, 
in order for us to be able to apply that. Let's make sure we're doing our application questions. So, mm. Pastor Hayden, what direction do you want to give us for these application questions this week for our life groups? Yeah, I'd really like you and challenge you as you think about kingdom realities and the kingdom happiness that God desires all his people to have, all his children, to consider how that changed the way you think about happiness, change the way that you consider God's desire for us to have genuine happiness and our spiritual status in the kingdom of heaven. I also want you to think about how, even as Christians, how a hyper-focus on circumstantial happiness can hinder the genuine happiness that God desires for every Christian. I think those are some really, really great places to start. And then as you read on, as you read Ephesians 2, 4 through 5, and you have to ask yourself the question, how does the lie of self-sufficiency hinder my ability to see my need for God? I mean, that's a really great question. How is my desire to be sufficient on my own without God, uh, maybe without my brothers and sisters in Christ, how does that really hinder someone's ability to see their need for God? And then ask yourself the follow-up question, that how does that same lie hinder your ability to look to God, except perhaps in times of great distress? You know, even as Christians, we often uh, only go to God in times of great distress when we realize outwardly that we cannot handle the situation. But as Christians, we understand something. We should understand something that's fundamental. And that is, regardless if life looks great on the outside or not, we should recognize that there is never a moment that we do not depend on God entirely. And so for the Christian, we need to see the idea of self-sufficiency is a hindrance for us to depend on God every day, not just the times that I'm in great distress. Those are a few things you can look at this week as you begin studying your application questions as you prepare to jump into your life groups this week. All right, Pastor Evan, we are now in our daily Bible reading spotlight, and this week we are going to be looking and reading and studying Mark chapter 10 through Mark chapter 13. What do you have for us this week? All right, well, we are beginning to move toward Jerusalem Mm. right away, Matt. Uh, Mark ten one, he left a, the region of Galilee and went to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And so he's starting to make his move there. It's a right away compass right in the first about 11 or 12 verses. Jesus lays down the truth about divorce. That's it's a really good topic, isn't it? It's For really, us. It's a really good topic. And the main thrust you need to understand is Jesus is testing their hearts. The problem is that they actually misapplied the law, even though he says in uh, um, verse 2, they said, in order to test him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Verse 3, he answered them, what did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Now that's in Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4, mm-hmm. um, if they see something indecent about her. Or what the bar. It's a Hebrew that's word the Hebrew, for that. Say it one more time. Ervat Dabar. And um, the point is they're, mit- they're twisting scripture to fit their mm-hmm. their passions of lust. Essentially, at this time, they were divorcing their wives if they didn't cook a meal, right? For any reason. Any reason. That it, was I divorce. find her indecent. Go yeah. away. Yeah. And the purpose of Deuteronomy was indecent was actually meaning adultery, sexual mm-hmm. morality. That is what it meant by in, indecent. Right. Hence why Jesus clarifies what the law meant, uh, meant saying that on, the only way that a person can divorce his wife is, in verse 11, through adultery. 
through sexual immorality against the other. And so it's because of their hardness of heart in verse 5 of chapter 10 that they were twisting the scripture. Because God desires that all marriages be reconciled, even ones who go as far as adultery, although there's an allowance for divorce because of the great sin and the great hardness of heart that leads to adultery. God's desire is that what he has joined together let no man separate. And so the point there is we should honor and esteem marriage. And even though that there's an allowance for it because of the sin, we should always recognize that marriage is an institution created by God. And although there are some allowances for divorce, it ought to never be the rule. And even when it's the exception, it should be looked at as a desire to be reconciled before it is done away with. And so what does that this to do with Mark's proof that Jesus is the Son of God? You know, we talked about who is Jesus in the first eight chapters, and now the next eight chapters is it's explaining that Jesus is the suffering servant servant and clarifying who are his disciples. Essentially, God's disciples are those who are faithful. Hmm. The unfaithful people, the Pharisees, the people who people thought were very religious, were completely unfaithful to the Word of God and to God's design, desire that what God has joined together, let not man separate. And they just were hard of heart and lustful and wanted to do their own thing. Instead, disciples are called to be faithful. Well, well next part, we're going to read chapter thir- uh, verse 13 of chapter 10. And, Which we just uh, talked about in the sermon. And so I was going to let you, Pastor Hayden, what should we expect in verses 13 to 31 with the... Yeah, to look at this section as in the concept of those who inherit the kingdom of God. Who inherits the kingdom of God? Those who receive Christ as a child would. And who are the, how, how does a child receive Christ? completely, utterly reliant on him. Which shows that a disciple of Christ is completely, utterly dependent on God like a child. Yep, like a child is dependent on his parents. And how a child is not uh, the most esteemed person in society, they were some of the lowest people in society. And oftentimes, we we ought to make sure we know that we are not people to be esteemed, but we are people to be humbled before a holy God. And then you have, then juxtaposed next to that, the rich young man who uh, was very esteemed. Not only did he was he esteemed in culture, but he highly esteemed himself. And what we see there in those verses is simply the fact that anyone who wants to come to God uh, with uh, their own goodness will never receive the kingdom of God because there is no one good except for God. And so the point here is that we must recognize that we are in utter need of God and there is no self-sufficiency or self-reliancy that will allow us to inherit the kingdom of God because it's going to be very difficult for people who can't recognize their need for Christ to enter the kingdom of God. But the kingdom of God is open for those who will recognize their despair and their need for Jesus. So a disciple needs God. And furthermore, it ends, these, these verses end in uh, verses uh, 28 to 31 with Jesus, uh, Peter saying, after Jesus says, what is impos- impossible of man is possible with God. And uh, Peter told, began to say, hey, see, we left everything and followed you. Trying to show, we're, we're doing this, Jesus. We right. left everything. And so really showing a disciple drops their lives to follow Christ. And that's yep. why it's like, it's not just, I'm turning from this one sin. No, I'm turning from And I love life. how Jesus, he doesn't take that as a time to say, well, why do you think you're so special? 
like maybe I would have done, but he's very kind here. He's like, well, let me tell you something, Peter. Let me affirm you. There is no one who has left house or brother or sister or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, which we talked about that a little bit, uh, the fact that, you know, if my house were to burn down today at Compass Bible Church, how many homes do I have? A lot. And so to recognize that you're going to receive all those so much even here and now because of the community that you have that you've followed for my sake— and it also adds this weird, weird phrase there, persecutions. That it's not always going to be great. There's also going to be persecution. But you're going to receive eternal life, and many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. Really revealing. He's not making the kingdom upside down. He's just revealing what is true. Mm, good. All right. Well, now this is where maybe marking your Bibles, even though we're in the middle of chapter 10, this is a uh, gear shift right here. They are on the road again, going to Jerusalem. Now, this is a key shift uh, for the rest of the book. Essentially, you can write in your heading, even though it says foretells, G- uh, foretells his death for the third time, write down Jesus versus Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jesus was up there in the northern kingdom doing his ministry. Now he's shifting gears. He's in the south, mm-hmm. and now he's taking on Jerusalem, the you can say the symbolic spiritual center of Israel, which it should have been, but... It isn't. They were relying on Jerusalem rather than relying on God. So this is the third time he foretells his death. And something I did not mention, but I need to mention here, is that there's this is the third time and the final time. Mark likes threes. But there's also a pattern. Jesus says something about it. Three musketeers. <laughs> like the I'm candy sorry. bar of the movie or the story? Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, that was three. Oh wow! Well, well done. Yeah, that was a uh, that was all. Right, back yeah. to regularly scheduled program. There you go. Well, all right. So every time Jesus in the Gospel of Mark mentions about his death and resurrection, which is important for the end of Mark, because um, he'll rise three days later, the disciples say something foolish, and then Jesus corrects them all three times. This time he says it, and then James and John were the foolish ones saying, "Hey, can we um, ask of you of a favor?" He goes, uh, "What is it?" Can you grant to, to us in, in verse 37 to sit at your right hand and your left of in glory? So taking the, the best seats in the house. And Jesus is like, I, mean, I don't think he did a face palm, but I would have. You would have. I would have done a face palm. But the thing is, Jesus tried to help clarify, this is something that you don't understand. And yes, you'll drink my cup and be baptized at the same baptism, but... What baptism? The baptism of... Persecution. There you go. And so what he he clarifies in verse 40, but to sit on my right hand or my left is not mine to grant. Right here, Jesus is revealing his submission to the Father's will mm. and kind of showing how the Trinity works and it works together in unison, but also how we should reflect that submission to not just one another, but submission to Christ as he submits to the Father's will. And our job and our goal isn't to try to get to the head of the table. Our job is to make sure that we are submitting to the will of God, and then God will place us where he sees fit, which is always an honorable place to be. And which he explains in verses 42 to 45, and verse 43 specifically, but whoever will be the great among you, that's what they wanted. They wanted to be great, sit at the right hand and the left hand of Jesus, Jesus' closest amigos. He said, you must, must be a servant. 
Because, why? Verse 45, for even the Son of Man, who is Jesus, did not come to serve, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Now, this might warm our hearts and warm our, our bellies a little bit in a sense of like, wow, this is such a great Jesus. Well, Jesus is fulfilling prophecy. You need to write down Isaiah 53, because Jesus is identifying with the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, who suffered in the place of those wandering sheep of all who have wandered away from God, but he ransomed them. How? Through his blood. By being pierced, we are healed. And so I would write down Isaiah 53, even pause, read Isaiah 53, and see how well, Mark 10, 45 just uses these powerful words to connect with Isaiah 53 to reveal, man, Jesus is amazing to be such a suffering servant on my behalf. Well, speaking of spiritually poor, Matthew, I'm sorry, Matthew, Mark 10, 46 to 52, and actually to the end of the chapter, we see someone who is spiritually poor. We read this account in, in Matthew. We get a name this time, Bartimaeus. Love that name. It just means son of me, Timaeus, by the way. I, just, I like it. Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus. Bar just means son of. Bart. Fun fact. <laughs> call him Bart. Barty over here, he was a blind guy on the way to, on, in Jericho on the, as they're on their way to Jerusalem. And here, I just love it. Here's someone who's spiritually poor, and he cries out to Jesus, saying, Jesus, son of David, the Messiah, have mercy on me. And this is the irony. Someone who's blind actually sees mm. and this is the and those are the people who see in the gospels and those are the see and those are the people because he has the kingdom and later this is actually gonna be juxtaposed against um the mark 12 which we'll get to in just a moment about the pharisees so here's someone who's blind but now see who and, actually really sees and the pharisees who should see but they're blind completely blind. All right, we'll come by shifting gears to Mark chapter 11. We have the triumphal entry. And again, this answers the question, who is Jesus? Well, Jesus is the king of Zechariah 9.9. So um, you can write down Zechariah 9.9 in your Bibles next to next to this um, passage right here, because in Zechariah 9.9, God foretold, foretold that the king would arrive on, a humble king would arrive on a colt. And that's what Jesus did does. And people are crying out, Hosanna in the highest. And as a reminder, we talked about this in the Gospel of Matthew. Hosanna means please save us. And you want to know something else? That word after Hosanna there in verse 9, that word blessed, not Makarios. Oh, what is a it? A different Greek word. It comes from the English word eulogy or a good word. And that word is uh, eulogia or eulogio. One of those. Eulogio. I guess it depends on the way you use it. But that word's a different word. So it doesn't mean uh, happy, it means a good word. Hosanna, good word, is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so the point you need to understand is you're here. People are, are excited because they understand that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, there's probably a couple people in the audience. One are people who understand and go, okay, I get it. This is the Savior of my sins. But also people thinking this is the Savior of Rome. Yeah, and I actually read a commentary on this whole idea of Hosanna in the highest. It's much like the way we use the word hallelujah. What does the word hallelujah mean? It's exactly right. They A lot of times this is something that people said uh, in light of messianic expectations, but they really, uh, it was just kind of a word that people used that was spiritual and seemed fitting. There you go. So 
we have people in the audience who probably understand that Jesus is coming to triumph over sin. Mm-hmm. Others expecting a tri- triumph over Rome because they're focused not on the kingdom, but on circumstances. Hey-o. So there you go. There's the kingdom circumstances. Those focused on conquering Rome, kingdom happiness. Those who are focused on Christ delivering them from their sin. All right. Well, now we get Mark's account of the fig tree, uh, as we read in Matthew. And just as a summary, the fig tree that Jesus is cursed is a representation of not just Israel, but that particular generation who rejects them. It looks like they have leaves, but there is no growth. Um, and so that's sandwiched. So we have the bread, fig tree part one. The meat, Jesus goes in and cleansing the temple, revealing the fig tree. Why he's so upset at the fig tree. He's really upset at the you know, leaders of Israel who are trying to, well, not really shepherding Israel because it looks like they're alive, but there is no real fruit. Because I don't know if we talked about it, but the, the, the fig tree, the reality was that when fig trees flowered at the same time that they bloomed their leaves. And so if a fig tree had leaves, it should also be bearing fruit or at least showing the showing signs, signs of, of bearing fruit. fruit. And so in the same way as he's in the temple, the temple is functioning the way that it was supposed to, but it wasn't bearing fruit. And so Jesus is really revealing that Israel is the, is this generation of leaders are not really of Israel. Mm. And so then he gives them a lesson of the fig tree. And so we talked about this in the gospel of, of Matthew in the point that in terms of what Mark's trying to prove with about prayer and the, and the great deeds that prayer can do is a disciple depends on God and prays in the will of God. And further, he, Mark actually makes this addition that Matthew doesn't mention is that whenever you stand praying, forgive. For if you have anything against anyone, in verse 25 of Mark 11, so that the Father who is also in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. So disciples depend on God and pray in his will and trust in the power of God to answer their prayers, as long as they're praying in the will, but then disciples also forgive. What are we going to do about this whole, should we be moving mountains? Well, if you read in your study Bible, when it says moving mountains, it was a Jewish metaphor in literature for doing what was seemingly impossible. And so we always have to take the Bible uh, literally, but we also need to understand what genre and literature and grammar that it's using. And so it's the same thing that you and I would say, it's raining cats and dogs. Well, none of us would be foolish enough to believe that if we looked out our window, cats and dogs would be coming out of the sky. But we do understand the principle that it's raining really, really hard. Well, in the same way, we're not saying that we're moving mountains, peaks, but what we are saying is we are doing things that seem impossible by man's standards. What Pastor Hayden said. All right. Well, Mark 11 wraps up with Jesus's authority being challenged. Remember, Jesus versus Jerusalem. And so he has this authority challenged. And so, again, he attacks the heart. Mm. They're not challenging him to get the answer so they can follow him. They're trying to challenge him so they can put him in a uh, corner and try to end him, kill him, try to remove him. And so he gives the poses a question to them. Was John from heaven or from man? They feared man. And so they did not give the answer that they thought was true, that John was only from man. Which shows you that they were more concerned with their circumstances than kingdom happiness that look, God provides. Look how the sermon's applying Bam. in Mark 11 right here. And so that's why Jesus says in verse 33, because they said, we don't know, Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things, because they don't want to know. They don't I mean, want to It wasn't it. that he was trying to keep something from them. He, the fact was they were trying to make the agenda 
about them and not about what Christ was truly there to do. And so for, you know, trying to illustrate who they are, that's what Mark 12 is all about. The parable of the tenants. If you read this parable, it talks about a vineyard owner and the servants pretty much rebel against him. And, won't. and, and they, they created, yeah, they created a scheme and agenda. Let's kill everyone that the master brings. Including the son. Including the heir so that we can possess this. See, they made it about them and their own circumstances, then the will of the master, the will of God. And so they came, tried to make everything about themselves, killed all the messengers that were sent, including the heir. And then what happens when the owner of the vineyard comes? What is he going to do? Destroy them. Destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others who will inherit it. Because remember, Mark, back in a couple chapters, these are the people who are truly blind. Mm -hmm. They don't see. And he's explaining the Pharisees, and they actually get the message this time in verse 12 of Mark 12. So 12, 12. They wanted to arrest him, but feared the people because they understood that the parable's against them. Here's the thing. Instead of repenting, like when David was approached by Nathan and he did a little parable about um, the sheep being stolen and David's like, that person should die. And Nathan's like, that's you. David didn't just kill Nathan. David tore his clothes. He admitted his sin. He was repentant. But these people were just so hard-hearted. They wanted it about themselves so badly that God gave them what they wanted. And they hardened their heart and refused their Messiah. And so they weren't done there. They were trying to trap them. And so that's where we get the paying taxes to Caesar. And so they try to put him in a trick like, hey, should we... uh, give taxes to Caesar, which is controversial. The Jewish people did not like Roman uh, Roman control. And so the Pharisees are like, ooh, let's get the people against him. Um, but Jesus answers correctly, render to Caesar what is Caesar's and God what is God's. It's like, this is Caesar's money, give it to Caesar. But here's the thing, everything's God's anyway, so it's going to go to God anyway. Then they marveled. I love that. They marveled at him because he made, it thing, he made things about the kingdom. He didn't try to stoop down to the level of people... Uh, He kept things at the level of the kingdom of God. And so speaking of circumstances versus the kingdom, Mark 12, 18 to 27, we have the Sadducees trying to challenge him on their false view of the resurrection. And here's the thrust. Verse 24. Because they didn't believe there was a resurrection. They didn't, sorry, they, so the Sadducees did not believe there would be a coming resurrection. And Jesus said to them in verse 24, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. They don't know the kingdom. That's mm. why they don't get it. They think about their circumstances and how, well, it can't work out this way because X, Y, and Z. Because right. of their- and what I, again, about this whole point about that, they don't know the scriptures. But what they were, what they were doing here is like they don't believe there's a resurrection. And so they were trying to get Jesus to answer this just outlandish scenario that they didn't even believe was going to happen to try to catch Jesus saying something wrong. And Jesus so again, like, you dumb. Yeah, he's like, and he just says, well, they're not going to marry because people in the kingdom of God aren't going to marry nor be given in marriage. So I love that because he just makes it so clear. They don't believe something that is obviously a true a truth, especially as we look at scripture. And Jesus says, no, this is what the kingdom of heaven is going to be like. Like, I just love that because they don't even believe in the resurrection of the kingdom of heaven in that context of actually us being there. And Jesus is like laying out, well, here's some kingdom principles that we're going to have forever. And I can imagine they're like, Huh? 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> because disciples, like earlier, have soft hearts and are repentant, and disciples know their Bible and submit to what God is saying. Good. All right, moving moving forward, because we are running out of time, Compass. Next, we have a great um, moment right here when uh, one of the scribes came up to Jesus and asked, you know, what is the greatest commandment? And, you know, and he actually explains it correctly in verse 33. Um, the scribe says, Jesus, you're right, in verse 32. Verse 33, and to love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, and all your strength, to love is, and also to love your neighbor as yourself, is much more than all the whole burnt offering and sacrifices. Bam, that is it. Circumstances, burnt offering and sacrifices, kingdom-minded, is to love God and love right. others. It's not, that, a, it's not about the temple sacrifices. The point of the sacrifices in the first place were about loving God and loving others in the right. first place, but they lost it. And so Jesus, that scene that he answered wisely, said, you are not far from what? The, the kingdom, kingdom of, of God. God. I love that. And so, and uh, wrapping up verse 12, uh, chapter 12, excuse me, uh, Jesus quotes Psalm 110 to prove that he is um, the Christ uh, the son of David, really revealing how the Bible in Psalm 110.1 talks about how the Lord said to my Lord, and that's kind of confusing because in the Hebrew, it's the Yahweh said to As my Lord. Lord. Kyri- to, uh, yeah, Adonai, all right? Or it, Kyri- in Greek, Kyrios. Kyrios is Greek. Right. So it's Yahweh to a Lord. And so Jesus says, Dave, in verse 37, David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? He's trying to really help them understand the way you understand scripture is wrong because the old testament the whole time is pointing to me yeah you have you have yahweh which is the lord says to my lord which is adonai yeah adonai adonai yeah and so finally mark chapter 12 we have two accounts that are supposed to be juxtaposed we have the scribes who in verse 38 to 39 walk around the long robes who give long prayers but they won't inherit the kingdom of God, but here's a... They want the best seats in the synagogues. But here's a poor widow who only gave a penny, two smaller copper coins, and Jesus says that she is actually spiritually rich because she has given everything that she owns. Hmm. And so kind of really showing who's in the kingdom and who's not, those who are poor in spirit versus those who rely on themselves. And then finally, in Mark 13, we got some eschatology, Pastor Hayden. And so Mm. here's the point. Here's actually something fun. There are actually 19 imperatives, meaning commands, from Mark 13, 5 to 37. And so those should be the focus. And so when Jesus is explaining how the temple will be destroyed in the first two verses of Mark 13, and then sets up a scene of what the future is going to look like. So the temple destruction and the end times are different events. One is near and one is far, like how the prophets prophesize. One event is yep. near, one is far. So he talks about the signs of the end of the age. And so essentially, Compass, what you need to understand is this. Don't be led astray. Don't be alarmed. Be on your guard. Do not be anxious. Why? Because here is God's plan. And so when people try to lead you astray, as he says in verse 21, don't believe it. But instead in verse 23, be on guard. Because he's describing what's going to happen. And if you want to jump to verse 28 of Mark 13, he says, learn the fig tree, uh, learn from the fig tree, learn its lesson. Now he's not talking about the previous lesson. He's just talking about fig trees in general. As soon as it branch becomes tender, verse 28, and puts out leaves, you know the summer is near. So when you see these things take place, what he describes previously, which you should read, you know that the uh, uh, that he is near at the very gates. I love that. We should be looking at the times, 
recognizing them in concert with what the text is saying in Mark as Jesus is explaining when the time of the return of Christ is coming. We shouldn't be alarmed, but we should be prepared and ready. And so finally, uh, Compass, just know this. Be on guard and keep awake because no one knows, verse 32, the day or the hour when he's going to return. So don't be that weirdo and try to calculate when Jesus is going to return. We had two heresies come from that. Jehovah Witnesses being one of them. So don't be those people and try to calculate, is it, is it going to happen? It's going to happen Tuesday. No. Just stay awake and be ready and continue to fulfill your mission to make disciples of Jesus Christ, looking forward to his coming kingdom. All right. That was a wonderful daily Bible reading spotlight. Thank you, Pastor Evan. We will end with some really pertinent announcements. We have our prayer night on March 19th from 5 to 6.30 p.m. We love packing out our auditorium and praying. Make a point to be there as we corporately pray for our church, our community, and the advancement of the gospel here and worldwide. We also want to invite all the men to our men's breakfast on March 11th. That's this Saturday at 9 a.m. Don't miss the opportunity to fellowship with other men in our church and to sit under the teaching of God's Word brought by Pastor Evan. We also have our Family Matters Conference coming up on April the 15th. We already have 200 people registered over that now, uh, and uh, time is running out to register for that. It's $10 a person. You can register at compasshillcountry.org. Compass Kids is free with registration, so anyone from birth to fifth grade can uh, be registered for free, and they can take part in Compass Kids. We also need, for those who do not register, Uh, people to serve. We need people to serve uh, for this conference so that we can put it on and provide an opportunity for our church and our community to be equipped in their parenting, marriage, and finances, and conflict resolution skills. So if you would like to serve, please let us know. And then last but not least, we have a life group off week on March 13th through the 17th. That is spring break. And so what we want to encourage you to do is get some R&R, take a vacation, and maybe your life group, maybe you meet for a fellowship. And we leave that up to each individual life group. We encourage you guys to make sure uh, that that week you connect with your life group. But do know that we are going to take that week off as uh, we are uh, having spring break. And I'll be out of town as well. On that note, uh, Compass, we are grateful for you guys. We look forward to seeing you soon. Mm-hmm.